from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, April 11th. I'm Marco Werman. A U.N. ceasefire deadline looms in Syria. One observer sees President Assad getting desperate. He sees that uh, time is running out. He's trying to kill his way to victory, and it's not working. Activists in Damascus say they have no choice but to fight. People are dying, and people are suffering, and we have to stop it. You know, We have to do something. And later, what it feels like to wear a burqa in France. You can't speak. You can't really breathe. Everyone's staring at you. Everyone's scared of you. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. And by WGBH, producer of NOVA with Deadliest Tornadoes. Scientists are striving to understand the forces at work behind last year's most extreme tornado outbreak in decades. Tonight at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The government of Syria is promising to comply with a looming ceasefire deadline. Today, the government announced that all its military operations will stop by dawn tomorrow. That's when the ceasefire, brokered by United Nations and Arab League envoy Kofi Annan, is supposed to go into effect. Annan says he's confident that rebel forces will also stop their operations and that the ceasefire will hold. If everyone respects it, I think by 6 o'clock on Thursday the 12th, Six o'clock in the morning on Thursday the 12th, we should see much improved situation on the ground. That's Kofi Annan speaking today in Iran. His optimism is countered by reports of more violence today in Syria, and opposition activists say government forces have so far failed to pull back from major cities, as mandated by Annan's plan. Syrian activist Omar al-Khani is in Damascus. The Syrian capital today is full of chic points. You can go uh, to, to the main squares, you can go to the back, back streets, and you can see the armed people everywhere. In Douma, the, the Damascus, the, the Damascus suburbs, tanks are still there. They didn't remove any tanks, and they, there is a heavy machine gun on it. You're at home. I, I hear children in the background. Do you feel free to move about the city? No, actually, after the, after the, sun, the sunset, you know, you can see that the street is empty. Shops are closed are, and empty. Nobody, uh, like, doing a normal life. And you can see, like, there is uh, a concern and there is a, a fear, you know, in the eyes. This is not the city that I used to live for 20 years ago. Things have changed there quite a bit. People are afraid, you know, from future. People want this regime to go. Uh, the weather in Damascus now is very good for picnic and very good for, uh, like, going around the city. But nobody's going, you know, around you know, the Assad government said today that they will stop the shelling uh, in, in those cities, in homes uh, in, in Dara, ahead of tomorrow's uh, ceasefire deadline. Do you have any hope that that will, in fact, be the case? Actually, you know, this regime is, is lying for four years. So why I have to trust them today, you know. But this regime is trying whatever to stop this revolution by killing, by raping, 
by uh, shelling cities, uh, destroying the whole cities. The whole Homs now is destroyed. Omar, you've told us your full name, Omar Alhani. You're, you're part of this organization, the Syrian Revolution Coordinators Union. You said uh, President Assad must go. Isn't that rather dangerous for you at this point? Uh, I think now it's time to, to make an act, you know, to stop hiding and uh, to say that we are here, you know. People are dying and we have to stop it, you know. We have to do something. And to sympathize with this revolution is not enough. We have to do an act to support these people who are asking their freedom. Omar, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Syrian activist Omar Alhani in Damascus. The uprising in Syria began over a year ago as protests against the government of President Bashar al-Assad. Now it's looking more like a civil war, says Mark Lynch. His new book is The Arab Uprising, The Unfinished Revolutions of the New Middle East. Lynch predicts a new international push in coming days to put added pressure on the Syrian government. The push that we're likely to see is going to be for things like referral to the International Criminal Court, for more of an observer mission, for various kinds of diplomatic pressure and increased sanctions, but I think not for uh, military intervention, which I think would be the the right thing to do. Not pushing for military intervention would be Not pushing for military intervention would be the right thing to do. I I still think that where we are right now, uh, despite the horror and the tragedy on the ground, I see no sign that uh, the kind of military action which might be contemplated by the international community would actually be able to make a positive difference on the ground. I mean, if you look on the ground, though, things are spiraling pretty out of control. This week, we saw the Syrian army shoot across the border into Turkey, killing at least two Syrian refugees and wounding others, including a Turkish police officer. What do you think incidents like this mean? I mean, do you see a regional war as a consequence? I do see it as a sign of desperation. He sees that uh, time is running out. He's trying to kill his way to victory, and it's not working. Uh, We're seeing still persistent mobilization against him. We're seeing the resilience of the opposition, and we're seeing growing international consensus against him. So things like the uh, the firing into Turkey and uh, the incident on the Lebanese border Mm. are exactly the kinds of things that are going to solidify international pressure against him. If this does conflagrate into kind of a regional conflict, what does that look like to you? How do you see that kind of conflict happening with Syria in the middle? I think what it turns into is a protracted insurgency and civil war with uh, with ongoing violence and the deep involvement of the other states in the region. And you can easily imagine uh, an opposition being stood up and uh, and funded and, and supplied by the states of the Gulf and by Turkey and by perhaps even the United States being strong enough to maintain ongoing insurgency and war, but not strong enough to actually overthrow Assad. And then on the other side, you could see Assad getting support from his international allies, Russia, Iran, and drawing on his own support inside. And again, being strong enough to survive, but not strong enough to destroy the opposition. And that just brings us into a long-term protracted civil conflict, which could drag on for quite some time. And uh, what that does aside from being a tremendous human catastrophe and destabilizing the region, it also, the longer it grinds on, the less likely there it is that you'll be able to find any kind of peaceful political transition. Do you think Syria is already in a civil war? 
Yeah, I think it is. I think that it's in a civil war, but one which there's still the dim hope of some kind of negotiated transition, not necessarily with Assad himself. The hope, I think, is that the people around him and uh, the people who continue to support his regime out of fear of the future will eventually come to see that their futures are not best protected by sticking with Assad, that we can hopefully encourage those groups to dump him as a way of protecting and securing their own future. Mark, final question. I understand you coined the term Arab Spring. I mean, it's become practically a brand uh, synonymous for democracy. How do you know that was you? I dearly hope that it was not me. Um, (laughs) I don't like the term Arab Spring uh, at all. And actually, uh, most Arab activists don't. Why not? What the concept of the Arab Spring suggests is that the entire region was frozen up until then, and then suddenly it melted. And what I've been seeing and what I've been describing is much more this rising tide of protest and mobilization over a very long time. It's not like uh, the Arabs just woke up. They've been awake for a long time. It's just that they were struggling against these authoritarian repressive regimes who they couldn't defeat. So it it was much to my chagrin that uh, someone at Foreign Policy wanted to find out where the Arab Spring came from, and they did a Google search and a LexisNexis search, and uh, a piece that I had written on uh, January 5th was the first uh, reference they could find. And so I kind of have to take uh, responsibility for it, I suppose, (laughs) but uh, it wasn't a coinage that I had wanted. Mark Lynch, professor of political science at George Washington University. His new book is The Arab Uprising, The Unfinished Revolutions of the New Middle East. Mark, thank you very much. And thank you. The concern over Syria and doubts that President Assad will comply with tomorrow's ceasefire deadline are being expressed in political cartoons around the globe. We have a slideshow for you at theworld.org. Vietnam has a kind of economic growth that many Western countries would envy. Just a few years ago, Vietnam's GDP was growing 8% a year. It's now slowed to about 6%. And the communist government is under pressure to create 1 million new jobs a year just to keep growth at its current pace. English is seen as key to achieving that goal, but as Jennifer Pack reports from Hanoi, learning a new language can bring in new ideas that the government might not welcome. Hanoi's Lenin Park, where I'm standing now at 5 o'clock in the morning, is one of the few places left where you can still find Soviet influence. Only 20 years ago, people here would be singing Russian songs. Not anymore. Middle-aged women are doing aerobic exercises to hip-hop and dance music. They're now looking west. This is a song about a woman who uh, goes in a battlefield. The enthusiasm for English in Vietnam is clear. Do Nhat Nam, who is 10, is a child prodigy. But he is not known for his music. Do is famous for speaking English. I love English the first time when I meet that, like the f- love from the first sight. And I love English. I only want to speak English every time. Yeah, but why? Well, what in particular made you want to learn English? Uh, there was a video of Mr. Steve Jobs about uh, computers. Do holds the record for being the youngest English translator in Vietnam. He translated his first book when he was just seven. Do may be exceptional, but he's not alone in his hunger to learn English. So do you think Obama is happy with people taking photos of his children? Learning centers like this one have popped up all over Vietnam. It wasn't all that long ago that the Vietnamese fought the United States in a brutal war. 
but economist Lei Dangdang says there is little animosity towards Americans and none towards English itself. Vietnam needs to look to the future, and in order to industrialize and normalize the country, Vietnam needs to speak English. But if it was just about economics, Vietnam should be focusing more on China, its largest trading partner. Instead, Lei says tensions between the two countries means relatively few Vietnamese want to learn Mandarin. All the streets in Vietnam are named according to generals and emperors. They have been fighting against the Chinese invasion since two thousand years. The government has ambitious economic plans, and it's pushing for all Vietnamese students to have a good grasp of English by 2020. But there are limits to this enthusiasm. Vietnam is still a communist state where news is tightly controlled. It would be extremely dangerous if you write in English and you contact with some foreigners. This bilingual political blogger doesn't want to reveal her identity because she has been arrested before. She's written about things that the authorities deem to be sensitive. For example, Vietnam's tense relations with China. If you are a prominent blogger and your bloggers is read by foreign media agency, for example, it would be very dangerous. For now, English standards are still quite poor in Vietnam. So books and music that would be censored in Vietnamese might slip past censors if it's in English. Young Vietnamese are breakdancing to Western hip hop in central Hanoi. For some, like Nok Tu, English music is a gateway to new ideas. The Ministry of Culture has banned a lot of Vietnamese songs that refer to freedom or rebellion. He tells me, but English music is not censored, and it makes me feel freer. And it's this feeling that may one day challenge the communist grip on power. For now, the government has sold its population on English as its economic future, but it's also the language of Western ideals. For the world, I'm Jennifer Pack in Hanoi. We have much more on Vietnam's love affair with English in our weekly podcast on language, the world, and words, including more from that child prodigy and a conversation with a celebrity diva who lives in Hanoi. Her kids are learning English, but at home the rule is Vietnamese only. That's the world in words at theworld.org. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is the world. A year ago today, France began enforcing what is known as the burqa ban. The measure makes it illegal for Muslim women to cover their faces in public. It's estimated that fewer than 2,000 women in France wear traditional Muslim face veils. Some are openly flouting the law, while others say they feel like they're under a form of house arrest. Irva Gunja reports from Paris. Every day, Laila Sitar has to think twice before she leaves her home. Inside her apartment, 90 minutes outside of Paris, she is a devoted mother and wife. But when she steps outside, she is seen as something else—a radical and a lawbreaker. That's because for the last 14 years, Lila has worn the niqab. I am wearing a dress from head to toe, plus the integral face veil, plus gloves. When I visited Lila at her home, she hid behind the front door as she let me in. With only women in the home, she was not veiled, but she did not want passersby to see. 
Inside the apartment, her dark green curtains stayed fully draped, so her face and figure would not be visible from the outside. When I asked to videotape, Lila left the room and returned all in black, in the niqab. Since the law passed, women's lives have become very difficult. They cannot go into public spaces. They do not have access to hospitals and doctors. They cannot go shopping and buy food in public spaces. They cannot bring their children to school. And there is the risk of being arrested all the time. No museums, libraries, zoo. They cannot go in the public space. On the day the law passed last April 11th, Lila started an organization called Amazonas de la Liberté. Today, there are 350 members. The organization is both a support system for women who feel ostracized by the law and an advocacy group. Since it's difficult now for many of the women to leave their homes, they mostly communicate online. I was deeply shocked when once in a French zoo, I saw a man and behind him something dark. Jacques Miard is the creator of the Burkaban. He's a politician in President Nicolas Sarkozy's UMP party. You could not you really identify as a person, but it was a person because this person was walking. And I realized that uh, in our country, where women have always been since centuries, along with men, giving their advice and sometimes even governing France, how could it be that a woman be, let's say, put in such a minority statute so that you can even not see her face. Miard says the law is not just about protecting women. It's about protecting human dignity. And he's not alone in this belief. The ban got widespread support. Many believe women are forced by their husbands to wear the face veil and hope the ban would free oppressed women. But Lila says that for her and for many of the women she knows, it's exactly the opposite. The issue is freedom of choice. And that's a point Lila wanted to stress to me in English. When I married... I uh, said uh, in my uh, husband, if you want to marry me, accept me with uh, this dress. Among the law's many supporters is one prominent feminist group run by Muslim women, Niput Nisomis, or Neither Whores Nor Submissives. The group helped to write the ban, and it's run today by Asma Gunifi. The face veil or niqab creates a separation between men and women. It is against the values of our society. For us, it is a sign of oppression. It is like a walking jail. But Lila says the law, not the niqab, is what makes so many women feel victimized. Since the law passed, many women feel that they are imprisoned. Before, they were free to wear the niqab outside. Now they are forced to pull it off. It is an imprisonment. This law reminds me of the segregation in the USA. We have become like Rosa Parks, who could not take the bus because of the color of her skin. Since the law passed, people insult us. They knock into us. They hit us. On the bus, people pull off our veils. Shortly after the law passed, two young women took to the streets of Paris in an outfit they thought would shock Parisians even more than the niqab. Imagine, what would they say if they saw, like, a girl wearing a niqab on top and a short skirt or hot pants or something like that. They call themselves nika B, or a word that rhymes with witch. And while they don't wear the niqab in their everyday lives, they believe all women should choose what they wear, 
whether it's a niqab or a miniskirt. The ones who choose to wear it, they really believe in what they're doing. Like you can't speak, you can't really breathe. Everyone's staring at you, everyone's scared of you. I mean, as a citizen, not only as a Muslim, but I feel totally insulted by the government actions. For Lila, she says she'll continue to fight the law and stand up for women and their religious rights. It is not a paradox to declare oneself French and Muslim. Today, our existence is denied since we cannot go in the public space. We want to be women, French citizens, like anybody else. For the world, I'm Irva Gunja in Paris. In World War II, a different denial of existence in France. Being a French citizen then meant being under the thumb of the Nazis. Estimates show up to 100,000 people resisted the German occupation. One of those people passed away today. Raymond Aubrac died at the age of 97. He was a crucial figure. Aubrac had been born to Jewish parents. During the war, they were deported to Auschwitz, where they were killed. Aubrac and his wife, Lucy Bernard, had organized a major resistance cell in the south of France that became one of the first networks targeting the Nazis. But in 1943, Obrock was captured outside Lyon by Klaus Barbie, the terrifying head of the Gestapo there, the so-called butcher of Lyon. Obrock was tortured. A few years ago, in an interview with the BBC, he said it was the hours between interrogations that were the hardest to endure. The worst part in my memory is after a couple of hours of interrogation, you are brought back into your cell in the evening. You know it will go on next morning. You don't know whether you'll be able not to talk. It was Lucy, his wife, who engineered a daring plan to spring Obrock from Nazi detention, and it worked. Lucy passed in 2007. Three years later, at the dedication of a school in his name in France, Raymond Obrac tried defining resistance. Try to understand what's happening around you in society, he said. And when you get the feeling there's an injustice, react without being content just to notice it and try to do something. For today's GeoQuiz, gaze up at London skyline. We're looking at a glassy triangular building that rises up more than 1,000 feet. That's enough to make it the tallest building in the European Union. The architect says he was inspired by the Venetian painter Canaletto and the masts of clipper ships. People generally love it or hate it. It basically looks like a a giant needle. It's on top of uh, London Bridge, right at the end of the south side of London Bridge. It's a giant glass shard. It's completely smooth on the sides. And anywhere you are in the city, almost anywhere, you can see it. So can you name this glass tower that rises up over the Thames? We'll get the view from the top and reveal the answer later in the show. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the world of Boogaloo. The music is designed to invite everyone in racially. It's designed to make everyone dance, whether you know the steps or not. It's that combination of naivete and utopianism with the weird ingredient added of it being funky and nasty at the same time. That's coming up on The World. 
PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. China's political scandal is getting wider and weirder. Last night came word on state-run media that a rising star in the Communist Party, Bua Xilai, had been suspended from his official positions. But what really got rumors flying online was the news that Bois' wife and housekeeper had been arrested on suspicion of the murder of a 41-year-old British consultant in November. The world's Mary Kay Magstad reports from Beijing. Word had gone around on China's social media by Tuesday afternoon that an important announcement would be made that evening on Bo Xilai's case. The early evening news came and went. Nothing. And then, at 11 p.m., the anchor on Chinese central television read the carefully worded statements that Bo Xilai was suspended from the Politburo and Central Committee, which was more or less expected. And then, something that was not. This announcement, that a British businessman, Neil Haywood, found dead in Chongqing in November, hadn't died of excessive alcohol consumption, as was reported at the time, but that he'd been murdered, and that Bo Xilai's wife, Gu Kai Lai, and a servant were, quote, highly suspected. China's social media lit up, with people trying to figure out what was going on. One prominent blogger and journalist, Michael Ante, noticed something strange about how state-run media were referring to Bo's wife. If you really read, they call her not Gu Kai Lai, they call her Bo Gu Kai Lai. That, that, that's weird. In other words, they tacked Bo's surname onto his wife's name, something not generally done in China. The Chinese propaganda guys really intentionally want to tell the people it's Bo Xilai's wife. It's not like an evil woman destroyed a good man. It's not. It's the man himself, evil. That matters because Bo was Communist Party royalty, the son of a senior revolutionary. Bo had hoped to step into one of the top nine leadership slots in the leadership transition this autumn. But his self-promoting populist style made others in the party uneasy. And Bo's crackdown on organized crime in Chongqing turns out to have taken down not just criminals, but also business rivals and others that he or his family felt had crossed him. Neil Haywood is said to have told friends that Bo's wife wanted him to divorce his Chinese wife and swear an oath of loyalty to the Bo family, and she was angry when he refused. Now she's accused in a murder case, and Bo Xilai could end up being implicated as well. This is by no means the first leadership scandal to rock the Communist Party, but it's the first to unfold with half a billion Chinese online sharing what they know or suspect. It's clear to all of us that the whole process would have been a whole lot more opaque, that this, this really did sort of shoot a bunch of holes in, in the roof and allow a lot of sunlight in. Kaiser Guo is director of international communications for China's leading search engine, Baidu. He says China's leaders have conflicted feelings about the role the Internet plays these days in China. There is an almost immeasurable amount of, of, of economic gain that China has realized as a result of rolling out the Internet, of being so aggressive in doing so. But at the same time, all those Chinese online means public opinion takes on a life of its own, 
especially at times like these. There's never been a time in China's history where there has been a comparably large and impactful public sphere. It is now really driving, in many ways, the entire national dialogue. Which is why the government takes such efforts to try to censor and control online content and discussion. In the Boishilai case, Michael Anti thinks the government deliberately let rumors swirl for two months so it would be easier to take down a popular provincial leader. The scandal started in early February when Boishilai's former police chief, Wang Lijun, fled to the U.S. consulate in Chengdu with, it now emerges, evidence that Bo's wife was involved in Haywood's murder. When the U.S. refused to give Wang political asylum, Wang turned himself over to the central government police. And then, a journalist Michael Anti knows, got a text message from Wang's phone, even though Wang was already in detention. It's a very mystery text message. We, we have a discussion, only one conclusion. That's Wang Lijun and the central government deliberately want to send the message out. So the journalist wrote the story that Wang Lijun had been detained and word and speculation spread online. Michael Anti thinks this is what the government wanted, to use the power of the Internet to guide and shape opinion with a finite goal of discrediting Bo Xilai. When public opinion strayed away from that goal, like into rumors of an attempted coup, people were detained. But the power of social media in China cuts both ways. China's netizens aren't going anywhere. They're waiting to see how the biggest leadership drama in decades will unfold, and it's a safe bet that as it does, they'll have plenty to say about it. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. We're going to zero in further now on the alleged murder victim at the heart of the Boishi Lai case. His name, as we heard, was Neil Haywood. Wall Street Journal's Jeremy Page has been reporting on the story. Neil is a, a British businessman who started out by coming to China in the early 1990s. He studied a bit of Chinese in Beijing, and then he moved up to the northeastern city of Dalian, where Bo Xilai was mayor at the time, and seems to have made an approach to Mr. Bo by just writing directly to him, offering to help attract foreign investment to the city. From there, he managed to build this relationship with the family, offering them advice, helping to arrange meetings with foreign officials and business people, and also helping them to make arrangements for the education of Bo Xilai's son, Bo Gua Gua, in the UK, where he went to a couple of British private schools and then on to Oxford University. Now, he was also, I understand, a part-time dealer of Aston Martin sports cars, and he married a Chinese woman. Was there anything suspicious about his background prior to uh, these events in which he died? Not really, no. He seemed to be, have been a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. He had various jobs. Um, he used to turn up at various events around China with Aston Martin cars, helping to do the marketing for them. He was also doing some due diligence work for an outfit called Hacklet, which is a sort of strategic business intelligence company that was set up by ex-British intelligence officers. Obviously, that suggests something to do with the intelligence world, but they also do a lot of fairly mundane due diligence stuff, just mm. bog-standard credit checks, a little bit of routine corporate investigation for companies that want to just find out more about their business partners in China. So it's not explicitly suspicious, but from the Chinese point of view, you know, I, I imagine that the Bo family wouldn't have been aware that he was also working for this strategic business intelligence company. What were the circumstances behind Neil Haywood's death? 
that's still very, very murky. Um, the Chinese local authorities told British consular officials down there who were handling the case that he had died of excess alcohol consumption and he was cremated very quickly without an autopsy. At the same time, either they or, or British officials seem to have, I think Chinese officials, informed Hayward's family that he died of a heart attack, mm. which is a little odd because normally you have to examine the body to conclude that. Likewise, the explanation that he died of excess alcohol consumption is a little odd because that's not a clinical cause of death. You would either say he died of alcohol poisoning or, or a heart attack caused by excess alcohol consumption. So possibly it was a combination of the two, but neither explanation is really satisfactory. And now Bua Shilai's wife, Gu Kailai, has been detained as a suspect in Haywood's murder. What is the connection? Well, she was already married to Bo when he was in, in Dalian and apparently got to know Neil when they were living in Dalian and you know became quite close to him, particularly when he was making arrangements for their son to study in the UK. At the same time, through the 1990s, she was doing some work with a, a company called Horus Consultancy and Investment, which was helping to advise companies coming to invest in China. And Haywood was doing similar work around the same time. Whether there was a business relationship between them or not, that's something we haven't been able to establish. Mm. And so far, that's all that can be found in terms of connection between Neil Haywood and Gu Kai Lai. That's correct. Apart from you know his own account given to friends about his relationship with the family, including her, and and how it was obviously a bit of a difficult relationship with her, and she was quite suspicious and always worried about someone in the family's inner circle betraying them. Why has she been detained, though? Well, we only have the official statement from the Chinese to go on that, and they give a very brief explanation. They said that she and her son had had a close relationship with Hayward, but there'd been a falling out over some financial issue. And then they went on to say that she was now a suspect in the case, along with an orderly from her household, and that she was now in the hands of judicial authorities. The Wall Street Journal's Jeremy Page speaking with us from London. Jeremy, thanks for your time. You're welcome. To answer our geoquiz today, we're going to turn to an expert on places. Bradley Garrett is a cultural geographer, and he blogs about what he calls place hacking. So, Bradley, the answer to our geoquiz today is one of Europe's tallest buildings at 1,017 feet. Do you know it? Uh, the answer is, of course, the Shard. The Shard. It is the tallest building in the European Union. It's in London. Did you climb it? I did. Yeah, I climbed it uh, three times. Can you tell us why you climbed it? I should probably start by saying that uh, I've spent the past three years uh, climbing skyscrapers all over London as they've been going up. And when we saw that the Shard was under construction, we knew we had to climb it. So we waited until it actually became the highest building in the European Union. And, uh, you know, we snuck in there in the middle of the night and climbed up. We posted some stunning photos taken from the top of London's unfinished Shard Tower at theworld.org. What was it like leaning out over the scaffolding and looking down below? Uh, it was absolutely spectacular. And of course, that, that, that's the answer to your last question about why we did it. Uh, you know, the views that you get from the top of the Shard, they're like nothing else. It's, it's so high, you know, you're up there floating in the clouds, just floating in the mist, and you can't actually hear the city down below. You can't see anything moving, no buses, no cars. It just, just looks like a giant circuit board. And uh, when we got up there, we actually found that the, the crane cab was open, so I could sit down in the driver's seat of the crane. And uh, that was that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Did you start kind of turning it around? Did somebody leave the keys? I hope not. <laughs> no, no, we didn't attempt to build the shard. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not just about the views, though, is it? I mean, for you, uh, you've got a philosophy behind what's known as place hacking. What is the idea? You know, the reasons that people explore hidden places in the city, uh, they vary from person to person. So I can't claim to speak for the community. But for me, I feel like, you know, there's increasingly less and less public space and space that's accessible, especially for creative and artistic practice. That's especially the case in London, where we've got, you know, a heavily monitored, surveilled and, and controlled urban environment. And so um, essentially by doing urban exploration and, and going into places that we're not supposed to be, uh, we're subverting that a bit. And by bringing back documentation from those places, we're able to share those experiences and hopefully, you know, encourage other people to uh, to creatively engage with their city. Maybe not in, in as drastic a way as we do, but, you know, in whatever way they, they find they want to. You call place hacking a creative and artistic practice. Uh, some people call it trespassing. Yeah, I mean, uh, by nature, what we do is trespass. Uh, you know, one of the terms that we use to refer to what we do is is recreational trespass. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in England, uh, trespass is actually a civil offense. It's it's not a criminal offense unless you're on the railways. And I would I would hope that most people would see it as um, as beneficial. You know, that we take the opportunity to go into these places and and get these photos, bring them back, and and share them. Now, I remember when Philippe Petit crossed the World Trade Centers years ago, the New York City police arrested him and then they let him go with, a, I think, a fine, a dollar for every floor that he uh, that the World Trades were, something like that. It was a minor fine. Did you get fined? Did you get ticketed? Yeah, Philippe Petit is one of our heroes. We absolutely love him. Um, and he's one of our inspirations for doing what we do, although we're, we're nowhere near as daring as him. Well, I've, I've been caught a couple of times and for the most part, uh, you know, once the police realize that we just have cameras and we're not there, you know, stealing metal out of the site or, you know, we don't have spray cans. They usually just have a laugh and send us on our way. Bradley, what are your future goals? Any buildings you'd really like to take on? There are a lot of buildings we'd like to do. Um, We've done some skyscrapers in Chicago and Minneapolis and started venturing into Europe as well. So we've, we've got a number of cities lined up we'll be visiting. What do you think accounts for place hacking and parkour, which is this kind of urban gymnastics almost, the planking that's going on? Everybody seems to be in touch with solid ground these days. I really think it's about our relationship to space. And here the the geography in me is going to come out, especially urban space. It really feels like it's constricting right now. You know, you're constantly told where you can go and where you can't go and told that you can't take photographs and, you know, you're constantly under surveillance. And so I think that um, it causes a particular type of angst that, that bubbles up in different ways in the population. And, and I think that's where parkour, free running, graffiti, street art to an extent, and urban exploration, you know, that all, that all comes out of the same thing, skateboarding as well. You know, it's, it's, about, it's about reappropriating the environment on our own terms. Bradley, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Cultural geographer Bradley Garrett spoke to us from ground level in London. Ever imagine standing on the 76th floor looking down 1,000 feet? You've got to check out his pictures from the top of the shard. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Our texting game winners are on top of the world today. Jonah in Oakland, Tanil in Seattle, and Tracy in St. Louis. Now, if you have a minute, why not put your smartphone to good use? Text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. If you're listening to us on the radio and can't stick around for the full hour, you should know that you can get the world to go if you download the PRI mobile app. It's available from the Android and iPhone stores, and it means you can have our program on demand. And if you have anything to say about our coverage while you're listening, you can leave a comment on any story at theworld.org. If you'd rather email, our address is theworld at pri.org.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The European Court of Human Rights gave the green light this week for five suspected Islamic militants to be extradited from Britain to the United States. As we reported earlier this week, the most prominent suspect is the one-armed, one-eyed cleric Abu Hamza al-Mazri. One of the charges against him relates to an attempt to set up an al-Qaeda training camp in a rather unlikely place. That's the 158-acre Dog Cry Ranch in southern Oregon in a small town called Bly. Les Zeitz investigated the ranch for the Oregonian newspaper when another suspect was on trial in 2009. So, Les, first off, paint a picture for us, the Dog Cry Ranch. What does it look like? Well, this is really a scrubby, rolling, flat land in a very remote part of Oregon. This is typically sheep and cattle grazing country, so you don't have a lot of vegetation. You don't have a lot of water. It's a fairly arid part of Oregon, and it is quite remote. It, it yeah. sounds like a good place for a secret terrorist training facility. Uh, when, it, when it had its height in 1999, uh, how many militants were there? Oh, you know, and calling them militants is probably a bit of an exaggeration, I guess. Okay. But at the at the most, they had a couple of weekend visits from militants from the Seattle area that maybe a dozen at a time was never a very large encampment. Did they have any arsenal to speak of? Weapons? <sighs> their, their arsenal, at the end of the day, really was like a couple of rifles and a couple of pistols was not uh, anything that you would use as a basis for some sort of an assault attack. I mean, it sounds like homegrown militia camps are, are scarier than this one. I mean, how long was the base operating before you know, they took it down? Well, it, it just became a, 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 a running joke, but the folks from overseas tried very hard for a couple of weeks to turn it into a camp, and they started doing night patrols and doing training. and But it became pretty apparent that this was in no way a location for a formal training camp. And so they fairly quickly abandoned this and returned to Seattle, hoping to train followers in Seattle. And they found in Seattle that the, the folks who had professed such an interest in this camp uh, had day jobs, had family, had very tight schedules, just really didn't have time for militant training. And Kassir threw up his hands and said, I'm done, and went back to Europe. It is. I mean, I can see why people started to joke about it, because it's like, I can't go to terrorist training camp this weekend. i got to take my kids to soccer kind of thing. Yeah, it's exactly what happened. Is it clear to you that the Dog Cry Ranch is something U.S. prosecutors are going to want to even bring up in court? Uh, yes, I believe so. The indictment that is the subject of the European court specifically files charges concerning the creation of this ranch. And uh, a couple of folks have already been convicted. So e even this late in the game, this many years after it, it, it appears that the federal government is quite serious about prosecuting uh, the, the good imam and uh, his associate. Les Zeitz, senior investigative reporter with The Oregonian. Thanks for telling us about uh, the Dog Cry Ranch. Appreciate it. Happy to do it. Finally, for today's global hit, we head back to the East Coast and Manhattan's East Village. That's where once a month a crowd gathers in a low-ceilinged, dimly lit, hard-to-find club to pay homage to a music with deep New York City roots. Bruce Wallace was there last month and was treated to a lesson in Boogaloo by a band called Spanglish Fly. It's getting on towards midnight on a Friday when the 11 members of Spanglish Fly get started. 
The bass leads into a signature tune, a version of the spiritual Go Down Moses, spiced up with some soul and Latin flavors. They call it Let My People Boogaloo. The boogaloo being allowed here goes back not to Moses, but to the mid-1960s in Harlem, way uptown. In Harlem back then, African and Italian Americans lived side by side with recent Latino immigrants, many from Puerto Rico. This is where the music called Boogaloo was born. According to legend, the Joe Cuba sextet was on stage one night in 1966, playing mambos and cha-chas to a largely African-American crowd. And the crowd wasn't feeling it. The group's timbale player suggested a simple rolling figure to the piano player. The band jumped in, and the whole place started dancing. song, Bang Bang, spent 10 weeks on the Billboard charts, and Boogaloo had arrived. Everything about it is inviting to everybody. Jonathan Goldman is Spanglish Fly's leader and trumpet player. He describes Boogaloo as a rich mix of Latin music with American blues, soul, and R&B, a fitting musical expression of Harlem in the 60s. The music is designed to invite everyone in racially. It's designed to make everyone dance, whether you know the steps or not. It's that combination of naivete and utopianism with the, I guess, the weird ingredient added of it being funky and nasty at the same time. Musicians like Joe Cuba, Johnny Colon, and Pete Rodriguez rode the Boogaloo wave for the next four years, playing to bigger and bigger crowds and sharing bills with the likes of The Temptations, James Brown, and Marvin Gaye. While it was gathering fans outside of Spanish Harlem, the music was also getting younger Latinos into Latin music. Latin Boogaloo is essentially the bridge. Journalist Matthew Ramirez Warren is finishing up a documentary about Boogaloo called We Like It Like That. Whereas a lot of them viewed Mambo as their parents' music, these kids at the time needed a, a sound that reflected their experience, and that's what Boogaloo was. Of course, the music had its detractors, too. It met a lot of resistance by the purists, which no things usually do. Harvey Averne was deep into the Latin music scene in the 60s and 70s, as a musician and as a producer on some seminal Boogaloo and Salsa albums. I met him at Spanglish Fly's show. He says that Boogaloo's accessibility, its simple lyrics and contagious rhythms, turned off a lot of Latin music aficionados. This resistance was one of several factors that blew Boogaloo off the airwaves and out of the dance halls in the early 70s. Woke up. The members of Spanglish Fly are part of a group of people bringing it back. They're updating it some, too. The group has a female lead singer, which was uncommon back in the day. So, too, is having as many original songs as the band has. This one, a new single called Me Gusta Mi Bicicleta, conjures the joy of riding a bicycle through New York's boroughs on a sunny day. For his part, Harvey Averne is pretty excited to see the sounds of the old days making a comeback. He's even signed on to produce some new Spanglish Fly sessions. And he notes, with some irony, that the new interest in Boogaloo being generated by Spanglish Fly and others might drive people to discover other, more quote-unquote purer styles of Latin music. Once you bring that young generation back into the music, via Boogaloo even, then they will start to wonder and go deeper. So the thing that the purists denied might be their savior in the end. 
That is poetic justice. Poetic justice with a boogaloo beat. For the world, I'm Bruce Wallace. That'll do it for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the United States Institute of Peace, helping to prevent, manage, and resolve violent international conflict. Online at usip.org. And the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and the Carnegie Corporation. PRI Public Radio International.